Last week's talk was on facing fear, how to really connect with our natural courage and awaken by not pulling away from what we're habitually trying to avoid. And the theme was really a description of how it's part of our wiring, it's part of our nature to be insecure, as with all embodied creatures. And out of that insecurity to try to control things, to make things turn out a certain way, to avoid things turning out another way, to numb out when we have to, to withdraw, to resist. So we have this whole uh, kind of myriad different manners of avoiding what we fear. And really, how much of our practice is about starting to see that, just to see how it's happening, and how much it's also part of our nature to wake up out of that, to begin to be willing to stay put, to open ourselves rather than contract away in the face of what's difficult. How not only is it a part of our practice, but it's really the path to freedom, to break this conditioning of avoiding and resisting and holding tight, and instead stay put, pause, open, pay attention, soften some. It's described as really our natural armoring, we soften, we dissolve some in the face of of what's difficult. When we meet our edge, we relax open rather than tighten more. As we do this, we build confidence, because what we find out is we actually become more whole, more awake, more in touch with our natural compassion and wisdom when we do it. So it builds confidence to face our fears. And then the more we have confidence, the more inspired and motivated we are to practice this practice, because this is what builds those capacities, mindfulness, compassion. So I'd like to continue that exploration this week, that how we find our refuge, our safety, not in holding on and resisting, but rather in opening to what's here. And as with any refuge, what we find out is our habitual ways of taking refuge really don't work. That if we're, if our idea of having faith or trusting in something is that then it'll all work out the way our ego self wants, we're in big trouble because faith doesn't work like that. There's a Dharma story that's been going around the circuits for quite a while, and I've kind of resisted it, but I'll read it to you anyway. A Dharma story is a story about the path, and um, in this one, takes place in the middle of a forest, and there's a hunter who is suddenly confronted by a huge, mean bear. In his fear, all attempts to shoot the bear were unsuccessful. Finally, he turned and ran as fast as he could. The hunter ran and ran and ran until he ended up at the edge of a very steep cliff. His hopes were dim. Seeing no way out of his predicament, and with the bear closing in rather quickly, the hunter got down on his knees, opened his arms, and exclaimed, Dear God, please give this bear some religion. (laughs) The sky darkened, and there was lightning in the air. Just a few feet short of the hunter, the bear came to an abrupt stop and glanced around, somewhat confused. Suddenly, the bear looked up into the sky and said, Oh, thank you, God, for the food I'm about to receive. (laughs) (laughs) So taking refuge, you know, praying, it's great, but we can't expect it to take shape the way we want it to take shape. Trying to control experience, any experience, to come out the way we want it to is like living in a dream that is run by fear and craving. And most of us do that. Most of our day is in some way driven by fear and craving, and we're just kind of falling into the next and the next and the next thought or habit or behavior that is designed to try to avoid what we're afraid of or get what we want. In many spiritual traditions, this, um, 
way of being in a dream has been described as kind of like a delusion or maya, as the Sanskrit word says it. And it's contrasted to awakening and freedom, that really our path is to see how we're caught up in this dream and this resisting and grasping. And in the seeing, begin to wake up to a day-to-day, moment-to-moment wakefulness that's not trapped, that's not running, that can stop this moment and just touch what's true, that we're not on the run. And yet what happens is we get caught in this dream every single day, most people I know. We get caught up in it. We get caught up in the dream and the way it mostly manifests is we're living in our thoughts. We sometimes take a breath. We sometimes look around. We sometimes feel our hearts. But we spend huge clumps of moments off in the dream, thinking, thinking ideas, concepts. And when we're living in a world of thoughts, it's dualistic. We're living in a world that tells us me, self, separate here, them, world, there, self, other, distance. There's a sense of being inadequate, incomplete, deficient. Our problem is that there's nothing wrong with thoughts. They're a great map and they can be useful, but they're not the territory. And when we live in them and believe in them, we're not connected with the living vital reality of this moment. We're disconnected. A while back, a friend told me about someone who had, instead of an answering machine at home, had a questioning machine. And people would call up and they'd get this machine and it would say, what we want to know is, who are you? And what do you want? (laughs) Now, those are questions that have been intrinsic to the inquiry of all wisdom traditions. Who are you? And what do you want? And there's a difference in the way the small ego self responds and the way we respond as we start waking up. How does the small ego self respond? Usually the small ego self has a kind of already static view of who we are. I'm this kind of person that lives these kind of roles out, has these main character traits or behavior traits, and likes these activities and so on. Ramdas describes it this way. He says that we come to Earth, and because the environment is the way the environment is, to cope with it, we take on the spacesuit. And the spacesuit is our ego that learns how to maneuver, manipulate, and get things and avoid things and so on, which is fine, except for we think we're the spacesuit and we forget who we are. You know, and the spacesuit's main ways of identifying itself ethnicity or religion or race or gender, our age, you know, we lock into a certain, I'm this age, you know, and then that's a very big definition of who we are. An older man is walking down the street one day when a frog jumps up on his arm and says, if you kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful princess and do whatever you want. The man sticks the frog in his pocket and walks on. After a few more blocks, the frog croaks, Hey, don't you want to kiss me so I'll turn into your beautiful princess? The man says, At this stage of life, I'd rather have a talking frog. (laughs) So these ideas that lock us into who we are, what we do, what we want, Under all the ideas of who we are when we're in this kind of ego, thought-based reality is this idea that we're a self that's separate and that's limited. Look closely. A self that's separate and limited. When we're identified with the spacesuit, with this kind of thought world, the self, what it wants, to be enhanced, to be completed, to have the partner, to be recognized, to have the degree, to have more money, to be safer, to have a nicer-looking spacesuit, a smarter spacesuit. Do you know what I mean? These are the wants that come out of this kind of egoic identity. 
They're based on something's wrong, something's missing, something's not right. So that right in this moment or any moment, there's this underlying kind of angst that I'm not there yet, things aren't right, I'm not complete, it's not okay. That's the spacesuit mentality. That's being lost in the dream. So the path is about starting to see that. See what we're identifying our with, self with. Anything that's smaller than the cosmos is part of the spacesuit usually, you know? And every culture, every spiritual culture, has myths and stories that describe this way that we get lost, that we forget our nature, and then the ways that we can come back home again. Now, one of the great spiritual sagas of the West, actually of the Midwest, that I'd like to draw on tonight, um, you know what, you all know it is the Wizard of Oz. In our Western or Midwestern saga, the protagonist, most of the story is living in a dream, isn't she? Right? And the basic theme or idea that, that runs through the dream is, I'm far from home, I need to get back, and I need help, and help is out there. And first help comes in the form of friends that also feel like they need help. They're living in if only mine too, right? If only I had, what, a brain? <laughs> if only I had, and then who's wanting the brain? The smart one, but if only I had a brain, if only I had a heart, you know? If only I had wisdom. There's if only mine. And Dorothy's big if only is if only I could find the wizard, you know, then I could get home. Then they get obsessed in the tasks that will take them home, right? You know, and they get addicted. That's one of the sidelines. They have to pull out of some drug addiction with poppies. Remember that one? <laughs> we all get addicted to something. They have to get the witch's broom. They have to fight flying monkeys. They have all sorts of obstacles, like we do, that come up on their way to their goal, which is to find somebody else that will help them. So here we are, and we're doing the same thing in a way. We, have, we all live in if-only mind to some degree. Most of us, if you, if you look closely, you'll find there's something. If only I was feeling better, or my body was different, or if only I had a little bit more money, or was done with this school program, or could retire from this job, we all hitch some sense of possible happiness to if only this was different. And so they're doing the same thing. Happiness is down the road. So what happens to Dorothy and the crew? They've accomplished a bunch of tasks and they're closing in and they're meeting with the wizard who's great and terrible and the possible answer to their dreams. And then what happens? Toto, remember Toto. Toto's the only one that had real wits about him, her, pulls the curtain and exposes the wizard. Now this is where meditation practice comes in. We are pulling the curtain constantly. We're always trying to see behind what this kind of idea world is trapping us into thinking. So Toto pulls the curtain, the only one not fully mesmerized. So here we are, and we're training our kind of our inner Toto to pull the curtain, so to speak, right? <laughs> I might be taking this too far. <laughs> and what we're looking at, the ways that we've been resisting being present, the ways we leave our habits for avoiding what's here, what's asking for attention. So we're seeing behind the habitual striving and resisting and preoccupation, seeing how we're living in if-only mind is pulling the curtain aside. Really central to practice is to see how much we're living in a thought world. You'll notice that as we sit, the instructions come back again and again to if you're drifting, if you're lost in thought, if you're not fully here, just notice that. Don't judge it. It's na our nature to get lost in thoughts, but it's also our nature to develop the capacity to wake up, to pull the curtain, to say, ah, okay, thinking, thinking. 
not to attack the wizard behind the curtain, but just go, oh, okay, so that's that little thought world that, or bubble I was lost in that really can't bring wisdom or love or anything we really long for. And then we open back into where life is really happening. That's our longing, to be here where it's happening. But we're afraid and we're wired not to be. So we have to keep on pulling the curtain. We keep having to look. The question that we're asking when we're looking, what's true? What's really true right now? If you just stop and just ask the question, what's true? What's really happening? There's the breath and there's sounds. There's different moods in our body and different sensations. Feelings of connectedness or not. To reconnect with what's true. When we do this, we begin to see arising the thoughts or the concepts that have the most stickiness, that it's hard to open out of. Some we can just come and go. We, let's say, might be having a thought that's planning what we're going to eat when we get home. We'll go thinking, thinking, come back to the breath, and that's okay. We can do that. But if we have a thought about what's due tomorrow at work that we're anxious about doing well on because it has to do with performance anxiety, which has to do with whether or not we'll feel humiliated and shamed, and we're getting down to core beliefs, right? They are stickier. What we find is when those beliefs are operational, we can't just go thinking, thinking, back to the breath. There's too much energy in that. So part of our practice is to begin to see the core beliefs that keep us running and that keep us small. The belief that no matter what I do, when somebody gets to know me, they will reject me. I will be abandoned. I'll never really succeed. If I don't work really, really hard, I'll be a bad person. Whatever whatever it is that keeps us locked into a lifestyle that doesn't resonate with our heart, that's driven, and that's painful. What are the core beliefs? What are the beliefs we have that are deficiency beliefs, that in some way reflect a sense of self that's not okay, that's not lovable, that's not acceptable right as we are now, this moment? This doesn't mean we can't have aspirations to, in different ways, cultivate qualities and talents and so on. It just means are we driven by a basic sense of not okay? And can we begin to see that, see the thoughts that keep that moving through us, that keep us driven like that? How much have we limited our lives, our relationships, our activities, our creativity, because we subscribe to these beliefs? It's an important question. I'm going to read you a short story. It's called, Who to Believe? This is about a little girl who was born into a very poor family in a shack in the backwoods of Tennessee. She was the 20th of 22 children, prematurely born and frail. Her survival was doubtful. When she was four years old, she had double pneumonia and scarlet fever, a deadly combination that left her with a paralyzed and useless left leg. She had to wear an iron leg brace, yet she was fortunate in having a mother who encouraged her. Well, this mother told her little girl, who was very bright, that despite the brace and the leg, she could do whatever she wanted to do with her life. She told her that all she needed to do was to have faith, persistence, courage, and an indomitable spirit. So at nine years of age, the little girl removed the leg brace and took the step that the doctors had told her she would never normally, never take. In four years, she developed a rhythmic stride, which was a medical wonder. Then this girl got the notion, the incredible notion, that she would like to be the world's greatest woman runner. Now, what could she mean, be a runner with a leg like that, shriveled, not so useful? Yet at age 13, she entered a race. She came in last, way, way last. She entered every race in high school, and in every race she came in last. Everyone begged her to quit. However, one day she came in next to last. And then there was a day when she won a race. From then on, Wilma Rudolph won every race that she entered. 
She went to Tennessee State University where she met a coach named Ed Temple. He saw the indomitable spirit of the girl, that she was a believer and that she had great natural talent. He trained her so well that in 1960, she went to the Olympic Games in Rome. There she was pitted against the greatest woman runner of the day, a German girl named Judah Hine. Nobody had ever be beaten Judah, but in the 100-meter dash, Wilma Rudolph won. She beat Judah again in the 200 meters. Wilma had just earned two Olympic gold medals. Finally came the 400-meter relay. It would be Wilma against Judah once again. The first two runners on Wilma's team made perfect handoffs with the baton. But when the third runner handed the baton to Wilma, she was so excited she dropped it, and Wilma saw Judah taking off down the track. It was impossible that anybody could catch this fleet and nimble girl. But Wilma did just that. Wilma Rudolph had earned her third Olympic gold medal. That day she made history as she became the first woman to ever win three gold medals in the same Olympic Games. And they had said she would never walk again. For me, this isn't a story about having um, a whole new set of self-expectations. But it's really a story about sensing what's possible. And an amazing amount is possible for each of us that we've ruled out. The most important arena we've ruled out is the possibility of real intimacy with our own being, a real friendliness, open-heartedness, real connection with the beings of our life expressing ourselves creatively in ways that we would love to but don't bother because we just don't think of ourselves as that kind of person. Really living joyfully, having a lot of presence and wakefulness. We rule out what's possible. We get locked into the programs installed by parents of who we should be and how we should perform and what's important to the culture. And we lose the connection with our own hearts and what matters to us. Our Buddha nature, this innate creativity and wakefulness, is not out there. It's not about becoming someone different, but really about opening to the fullness of who we are right now. Not after 10 more meditation retreats or years of practice, but learning right now just to stop and feel that sense of, this is enough, I'm enough. Just take a moment, if you will. Let's close our eyes. And take a few breaths. And sense what your experience is in your body and in your heart. And see if there can be that quality of this moment is enough. Just how this is, is enough. It's okay. That doesn't mean pleasant. It doesn't mean unpleasant. Just it's okay. It's enough. There's a fullness or a completeness in just this breath or this sensation or this awareness of sound. that this being, this life is enough. My life as it is, is enough. It's not an idea of who I am or my life is, but just an acceptance of how it is. These experiences, these moments, the beings in my life, what's happening is okay, is enough. Can we let go of the ideas that judge and compare, that make us small and separate, and just open to this flow? This is enough. How it is, is enough. Continuing to check in in that way as you'd like through the evening. Can this be enough? This meditation is training in not believing our thoughts. That doesn't mean we don't find skillful thoughts that inform us and guide us and help us, but not to hold tightly to any idea 
of who we are and what life is. Because any idea stops us from touching the vivid, immediate truth of it. Just this moment, as it is, our practice is to see the thoughts come up, because they come up again and again, not to judge them, not to bash them, but to recognize, okay, thinking, and know that's just a fragment, a reflection, a representation. It's not the whole, it's not the living experience. So we recognize thoughts as clouds in the sky of awareness or waves in the sea and don't identify or live in them so much. Rather, come back to the breath or to sound. If the thoughts are charged, as I mentioned before, with a lot of fear or wanting, we notice the thinking and then we just open to what's true, the sea of energy underneath, the feelings in the body, what's behind the curtain, behind the trance of the thinking mind, is the aliveness, and only by touching it can we heal and be awake. Thoughts are the map, they're not the territory. Can we touch what's real? Can we realize who we are in an immediate way? Another little exercise, if you will, just to bring your hands together, touching them lightly in your lap in a comfortable way. Now think about hands and the idea of a hand. What is a hand? Everything you can think about, about hand. All the ideas, the concept of hand. And then just simply feel the experience where hand is as sensations, as aliveness dropping from the idea of hand into what you can perceive as true. What is your experience truly from within? Sensations, vibrations. Is there a boundary? Can you sense the edges of hand? Sense your idea of a body. And then just feel your body. What's really the experience of body? Is there a body as an idea? What's it like from the inside? The immediate reality, the living reality. Try this. Sense your idea of someone that's dear to you. Whatever comes to mind, image, thoughts of that person. Might be the sound of their voice, the way they move. And then drop all that. Drop any idea, image, concept, and just see if you can sense who that being is. What's true? Who is that really? Are they your picture of them? Are they the sound of their voice? What's most true? Take a few deep breaths. And coming back, opening your eyes. I'd just like to check in with you if anyone feels willing of what is it like to move from ideas, from the representation to what's real. What did you notice? Anyone? Way back there. Just a 
Okay, so when you went from the idea of the person to who are they, you sense the sensation that ha- arises in their presence. The, the presence of the individual without all the stuff. Without all the stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Others? Did you hear that? No. That with when it was conceptual, the ex- perception was just of the front of hands and front of body. But when it became a more sensational from within, there was more wholeness included the back. It woke up a po- levels of experience that had not been included in the concept realm. So thank you. That's that's beautiful. Anything else you noticed? When you had an idea of the hands and the body and it shifted to just the sensations, the sense of me fell away. It was just, a, it was just sensation. There was no idea of me there with it. This is where this practice leads to, is that the only way the sense of me can be sustained is through the ideas and the concepts. As soon as you drop out of ideas and concepts, what else disappears? Moi, as a separate idea self. There's just sensations and emotions and sounds and so on. So we'll continue this a bit. Um, Just to say that as I explore this myself, I do it more and more with with people in my life because I'm becoming aware of how easy it is to lock into a person as my idea of who that person is, my memory of them or my um, images of them. And so one of the practices I do now, and I I shared this at the retreat with some folks there, with my son is that, and this a lot of mothers do, is, is going in at night when he's sleeping. And I'll just look at him sleeping. And then even the image of what I'm seeing visually will drop away and I'll just sense energetic beingness. The, you know, as we find with our children, just it's so easy to see the purity and just the aliveness and the sacredness of that being. And it gets so disguised during the day when my personality and his personality are playing out their thing. So it's an amazing practice for me to intentionally see through the persona. And what happens to me when I do this in the evening is I get so um, inspired and I feel such a sense of not him or me, but this here we are love feeling that I kind of vow the next day that I'm going to keep holding that right there and move through the day with that. And every single day (laughs) I forget. And I lock into ego self reacting to another ego self. And yet somewhere I really trust that the more moments that I intentionally see through, the more my mind and heart's inclined in that way. It's much easier to see a being who they are when they're asleep or at a distance or even after they've died. Do you know what I mean? Because we're not in our reactivity, our armor's not up. And then what we see is not them and us, but just that shared being, as one person described, just the sensations of presence with, which is quite a, uh, a thing to cherish. So pulling the curtain, looking behind the persona, looking behind the thoughts, our ideas of hand or body, to just this living, vital experience of being here. David Audubon writes, if you see a bird and it's different than the description in the field guide, 
believe the bird. (laughs) You understand. Out of this world of ideas. Yet what we find is on a daily basis, this internal dialogue is so consistent and has so few breaks that it sustains this world of thoughts that we live in. So meditation practice is really giving it a break. You know, little chinks in that armor of our, of our thought reality till we become more inclined and more familiar in that open space of living reality than the thought representational reality. Giving it a break, coming alive into the moments. This is D.H. Lawrence. When we get out of the glass bottles of our ego, and when we escape like squirrels turning in the cages of our personality and get into the forests again, we will shiver with cold and fright, but things will happen to us so that we don't know ourselves. Cool, unlying life will rush in, and passion will make our bodies taut with power. We shall stamp our feet with new power, and old things will fall down. We shall laugh, and institutions will curl up like burnt paper. So, to go back to Dorothy again, who there she is, and the curtain's been pulled, right? So her happiness project has gotten messed up, right? She had this whole thing hooked on the wizard taking her home. The curtain's been pulled, and he's turned out to be a human, and he just takes off without her. So what happens then? Remember how the good witch, the wise witch, reminded her that she had the power all along within her? It's a great ending for a Western spiritual drama, isn't it? (laughs) The power was all within her. That all she had to do was remember her aspiration, that there's no place like home, that we really cherish being here and now. There is such power to remembering that. If we can just say it again and again, feel into it again and again, this is what we cherish, that we wake up our hearts and our minds into this moment, really being here. So just, there's no place like home. And then she was already wearing the slippers. We're already, within us, we already have the courage, the capacity to be here. It's remembering, coming back. Then she wakes from her dream, and she's surrounded by those good friends, courage and wisdom, right, and love. So we don't have to go anywhere. There's no yellow brick road. This path we call the spiritual path is not like a road from here, you know, 800 miles to find a wizard. It's, um, the road is really a pathway into our own hearts and minds this moment. And it has to be this moment. It's not like we're training so another time that moment will become this moment. It's really right here and it's really right now. This is really the Buddha's most central message that there's no Buddha out there, that we each are awakening beings. Our suffering is because we don't fully believe it. Our suffering is because we keep looking outside ourselves and believing that we're limited and deficient. And our freedom comes when we start trusting who's inside, the one who knows, the one who loves. Albert Schweitzer writes, the witch doctor succeeds for the same reason the rest of us doctors succeed. Each patient carries his own doctor inside him. They come to us not knowing this truth. We're at our best when we give the doctor who resides within each patient a chance to go to work. So this is the grounds of spiritual practice, as we return within, not away from all the divine manifestations of Buddha nature everywhere, but trusting this life within us, trusting that the source of our love and the source of our wisdom is here for us in any moment that we care to look. Another reading, um, some of you know this, it's called Returning to the Source. The experience of the divine is not rare and difficult to obtain. 
It is our understanding of it that needs great improvement. I am a lifelong and natural mystic. I have known the direct experience of the divine countless times in sunrises, in music, in children's laughter. What, it is, what is it like to be a mystic in this world? In part, it is sad. Mystics can go through a long period in which they have experiences of the divine, but they remain unsure. Once after I gave a talk in a church, an old woman waited until the crowd of people who came up to me afterward cleared. I saw that she was not long for this world. Acting very circumspectly, she recited a short dream in which an amazing golden sun came to her, and then she asked if it was God. I first thought of my standard reply, well, we would need to explore this dream and see what's in it, but then I was struck by the total emotional impact of the larger situation. This old woman is dying, and it matters very much to her if she met God even once in this life. I said, yes, it was God, and we both broke into tears. But how sad. She had the marks of a very spiritual person whose life was embedded in God. And yet she asked desperately if once she met him. To me, she represents most of mankind. She is already well on her way, but she does not recognize the signs. The more that we practice, the more we come home and feel the breath, the more that we're in nature and feel that connection with loved ones and really feel the, the togetherness, our confidence builds. We begin to trust that Buddha nature isn't out there and that these awakening heart minds are, in fact, awakening Buddhas, that this is the truth. And we feel that confidence. And so that even when the weather's difficult, even when the cyclones come, there's some more and more place in us that's willing to look and see, well, what's really true right now? Do I have to contract fully into this fearful, habitual reflex of defending? Or maybe a little more I can just stay and be with and touch what's here. There's a little more faith. And there's also a deeper longing to come home, to be present, to be here. Deepening practice is like learning how to swim and discovering that the water does hold us up moment by moment. That you can put it aside and just drop into this moment and there is a refuge in being very, very present. This life holds us up moment by moment. So it becomes more and more possible to relax. We want to relax, it's just not our habit. But the more we just practice, the more just there's this part of us that knows, okay, let go, just let go into this, into the life of this, relax into this moment. So what do we discover when we start to do that? What do we discover when we pull aside the curtain, when we look and see what's real, when we relax into this moment? It's been described, the realization, what we see, with two flavors. Sri Narsargadatta puts it the best that I know. Love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Isn't that beautiful? That our wisdom, when we really look closely, we're no thing. When we look closely, there's not a separate self-entity. When we're not living in thoughts, there's a flow. There's a flow of experience of sensations and sounds and beingness, but not a separate entity. When we're feeling fear, it's the shadow of the separate self. We're believing in separation. So we look through the eyes of wisdom and we just see it's all changing. There's nothing that we can point out as having separate self-existence. Srinarsagradatta, again, practice, which is called sadhana, consists in reminding oneself of one's pure beingness, not being anything in particular, not even a sum of particulars, simply the truth of being moment to moment. When we put aside self as an idea, we open up to the boundlessness of possible being, all the different ways. This poem is called Ego Tripping. 
and it's written by Nikki Giovanni. I was born in the Congo. I walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every 100 years falls into the center, giving divine perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne drinking nectar with Allah. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to control my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti, and tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert with a packet of goat's meat and a change of clothes. I crossed it in two hours. I am a gazelle so swift, so swift you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows ever on. My son Noah built a new ark and I stood proudly at the helm as we sailed on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus. Men intoned my loving name, all praises, all praises, I'm the one who would save. I sewed diamonds in my backyard, my bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the Arab world. <laughs> I am so hip, even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head, thinned in gold, was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal, I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the sky. <laughs> All that we experience is part of our awareness, part of the big who we are. We're not the shape of our eyes, we're what is seen. We're all that is heard. What we sense with our heart, we did that exercise earlier when we sense a dear one, is really that being is part of our experiencing. It's us, it's here we are, we're not separate. All that is experienced is part of our awareness, part of who we are. We have reduced the wild, boundless presence of God by the small images we have projected onto God. Let go and let go and let go of these, and the divine will visit you totally. That's O'Donohue. So it's our practice to keep letting go of any of the ideas that make our world smaller, of any of the identifications that prevent us from realizing the beauty and the love and the wakefulness of our spirit. We keep letting go, letting go to realize that we are innately connected, that we belong to each other and we belong to this life. So at the beginning, I told you about the questioning machine. You know, who are you? What do you want? What we find as we go deep into those questions is that what we want is to be fully who we are, and that who we are is expressed in what we want. We want to be that wakeful, open-hearted awareness that is our nature. That's our longing. And the more we open to it, the more that longing becomes very, very real. It helps us to wake up. So what I'd like to do is close with a short meditation, if you will, as you establish yourself in a stillness to let go through the body once again just relaxing any tension or tightness Feeling the breath and feeling your heart. And taking a moment to really connect with your aspiration. And whatever words, whatever sense is best expressed. 
what your deepest longing is that you're aware of this moment. And then with a relaxed and open attention, just being with what's true. Bringing a kind presence to whatever arises. Looking behind the curtain when thoughts come up. Just to sense what's true in your body, in your heart. to become who you are, to become that wakefulness, to become that kind presence that is your nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.